Can I preface this real quick by saying I came directly from LAX and I woke up at seven o'clock this morning to get on a plane, so I need a shower and I kind of maybe look like I got hit by a bus. But other than that, I'm ready to go and glad to be here. Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Laura Jane Grace, the creator and frontwoman of the punk rock band Against Me. We talk about the band and being part of the DIY punk movement. How when you're a self-proclaimed anti-capitalist band, things can get really complicated when you start to finally make money from your music. We also discuss her internalized transphobia, as she describes it, and how dealing with self-hatred for so many of us is an ongoing process. So all that is coming up. If you enjoy the interview, please tell a friend or help spread the word on social media. I love seeing your tweets and interacting each week, so thank you for that. If you want to connect, I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. The show's on Twitter at LGBTQPod. And then as always, don't forget to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV. They're the number one place for all your TV after show discussions. All right, without further ado, here's the interview. I've kind of passed that point of being tired where that's just like status quo. I'm, totally. I'm used to operating with little to no sleep, so it's fine. Yeah, you have a lot of endurance. I was reading the book. Yeah. You kind of lived the rock star lifestyle that I imagine, like staying out late and drinking and doing drugs and not sleeping. How did you sustain that and perform every night? Um, geez, I don't know. I mean, I am here. I'm alive to tell the tale, right? Part of it's being young, I think, you know, I mean, a lot of it's cliches. It's like, that's part of the music industry or that's part of being in a band, you know, and, 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 uh, it's just par for the chorus. I mean, it was kind of like the stereotypical story too. Mm -hmm. I mean, not with a transition. (laughs) (laughs) Sans the gender dysphoria part. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Small, small things. Right. But like, like vocal wise, did you ever like lose your voice on tour? Well, see, like I, you know, I've I've had people ask me about that a lot over the years, like specifically, you know, from our like first, second to our first record to our second record to our third people being like, oh, your voice changed or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, like coming into this, I didn't know how to sing. Like for me, that was like the appeal of punk rock. It was like, you don't know how to, you don't need to know how to do this. You can just get in front of a microphone and yell. At first that was enough, but then you start going on tour and you're playing like 200 plus shows a year and you realize like, oh, I kind of need to learn how to do this. So I'm not destroying my voice. So you just learn over time. But also if you're playing that many shows per year, like your voice changes and does things like you just have no control over. Wow. Did your voice change again once you went on hormones? No, it doesn't work like that. Really? No, uh, it just um, doesn't work like that. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And that's all the hormones just don't in general affect your vocal cords uh, at all? I, I know t- testosterone affects your vo- vocal cords, but estrogen doesn't affect your vocal cords, no. Oh, thank you for that clarification. Yeah, no worries. Also, I thought it was so interesting that you didn't hide your gender in like the songs and the lyrics you were writing. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. I also wonder if that was like helpful for people to see just like this paper trail of here she is. She's been processing it for so long. I think afterwards it dawned on people more so, you know, but like at first, cause I've always turned to writing as like a cathartic outlet, you know? Um, so every against me record has songs that are just me working out what's going on in my head. And at first I felt like I really had to like veil that in metaphor and then after a while, you know, maybe it was like my subconscious pushing me towards like seeing how much I could get away with saying and then realizing no one was catching on after a while. It was just like, OK, well, you know, how blatant can I be? But no one no one has ever said anything. You know, that's like the anarchist in you. Like, what can I get away with? <laughs> 
anarchy and like nihilism was such a big part of why you said you were attracted to punk music. Are you still as connected to punk music from those standpoints? Well, there's a real distinction that should be made between anarchism and nihilism. You know, uh, nihilism was definitely what attracted me to punk rock first. You know, the whole live fast, die young thing. And especially living in South Florida at the time, and I really never thought I would escape South Florida. I had a politicizing moment when I was like 14, 15 years old. I got arrested, beat up by the cops, um, charged with battery on an officer resisting arrest of violence and got stuck in the court system for years. And uh, that really opened my eyes to politics and specifically anarchist politics. And, you know, anarchism as a philosophy isn't just like, you know, about destruction or chaos or anything like that. You know, it's really about thinking for yourself, questioning authority and, you know, no gods, no masters. I, I was surprised too that like, it wasn't just like throwing around the word anarchy. As you just explained now, like, you knew what it meant. You knew what you're fighting for. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I couldn't have def- defined anarchy, you know, or even nihilism. Right. Well, I mean, you know, there are definitely many brilliant anarchist writers out there. I used to read a lot of Emma Goldman uh, specifically. Um, and, and the Florida radical activist scene was something I got involved in at a young age through some, through uh, doing Food Not Bombs, which was, you know, about taking reclaimed food and, and serving it to the homeless. Um, and, and through there, you know, just got organized with other activists. And we used to meet up regularly, regularly organize things like May Day parades, youth liberation conferences, uh, road trips to various protests. This is all around like late 90s, 1990s uh, WTO riots and, and, and things like that. Um, but I was, you know, very interested in that scene. And I thought too, like when you were growing up, you want, you had this dream, you wanted to be, to lead like a band. It's be always been what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But it seemed like in the book, you had that dream before you even started playing guitar or sure yeah. before you even knew if you had the talent or skill. Sure. I just, I never, like, never had any other ambition to do anything other than be a musician and be in a band, you know? I just knew from a very early age. And really, like, you know, I had a moment, my earliest moment of self-identification was seeing Madonna on screen and being like, I want to be that. I want to be her when I grow up. But I, you know, I saved up money mowing lawns to get my first guitar when I was eight years old and just... I just always knew this is what I want to do. It's just so like, lucky in your situation that you like had the talent to like match a desire. <laughs> well, again, that was what was appealing about punk rock. It was like, oh, I don't need talent. I can just fake it or I can just scream or, I, you know, I, I got three chords together. I can start a band. If, but I would, I would like, challenge you that like your, like your songwriting is a little bit more than just nothing. Well, thanks. I, you know, but I attribute that to, to work, you know, hard work and, and yeah. putting in the hours of writing, you know. Do you know when you've written a great song? Um... I, I really think like every artist is filled with self-doubt to a point, you know, where you, you write something and you're like, oh, it's crap. It's no good. So I still definitely have those moments. But but it's really more about like when a song's easy and when it comes to you instantly and you don't have to work for it. Those are the really like gratifying moments. Oh, I love that. Do you have like a, an example from like the last album? Well, the most recent album, Shapeshift With Me, which came out in September, like was probably the easiest against me re- record to write just specifically because I was working on the book. So usually in the past, like the pressure was always on songwriting. And because now the pressure was on writing a book, songwriting became my like procrastination tool where it was like, okay, my editor wants a chapter and it's due at the end of the week, but maybe I'll pick up my guitar instead and write a song. And it really just like, you know, so much about the book was reflecting on the past songwriting just became about like, how do I feel right now? Immediate. Like, I just want to capture right now this instant and I don't want to overthink it. Maybe I got a crush on someone. I'll just write a dumb song about having a crush. But that was, that, that was really satisfying, you know? Uh, speaking of the book, the title is, it's the, the T word. It's, mm-hmm. it's tranny. 
before I, I read it, I thought you were going to be like advocating for a positive usage yeah. of the word, but it's very much the opposite. I I don't like the word, you know, I, I, um, the honestly, like in ways like talking about or doing the book tour is more draining because of the title of the book and having to hear it so much and look at it, like so many pictures of my face with the word tranny above it. It's like awesome. But it's it's a complicated word. You know, we, we were talking about Kate Bornstein before this uh, we started filming. And I just did a, pa- a panel with Kate Bornstein in Miami. And, and she was talking about the word with me and, you know, explaining the history of the word to me. And, and she was saying that it was a word coined by Australian trans women who came over. And just like, you know, Australians have a tendency to shorten words. But at the same time, I know that it's a word most often used in hate now, you know. And, and uh, I... It's it's a complicated word, yeah. you know. But must mu- a lot of my book is about self loathing and self hatred, internalized transphobia. So in that way, it's a fitting title, you know. And and I like challenging words too. I like I I like that it hopefully makes you think. Yeah. And speaking of Kate Bornstein, it's the word that she says like she most identifies with. It's how she describes herself. I know that's not your story, but it's like how she celebrates. Right. So there's so many different like meanings and like feelings. Well, what are you going to do in that situation, really? You know, where like that was a word that I, I came out as trans when I was 30. Right. So it wasn't a word that I had much history with before that, other than knowing it as something that was derogatory. Right. So then you meet a trans person who's like, I identify with that word. And then you meet another trans person who's like, I hate that word. Your title of your book is disgusting. Never say that word around me. And you're just standing there like, I wrote a book and this is the title of the book. So where, where what side are you supposed to take? Which trans person are you supposed to side with in that instance? Um, again, it's a, it's a challenging word. And I think in discussions important around it, you know, and, 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 Different perspectives perspectives are valid, but um, it, it's just it's the title of my book, you know. And you're like, please judge me based on what's inside the book. Well, it's a cliche, but yeah, don't judge a book <laughs> book by its cover. It's a cliche, but it's true. I mean, it, it kind of like I feel weird saying this, but it kind of irked me how freely other interviewers were able to just name the book. You yeah, know? And just like say it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's like really jarring sometimes. Actually, yeah, for sure. And like the marketing discussions that sometimes went on behind the scenes around the book, it was like, whoa, this is like way weird. Um, but yeah, because I was listening to other interviews and they're like, oh, the book's called this, and I was like, oh, like are we using that word like f- so freely, especially non-members that's, of the queer community? I mean, honestly, that's why it's like grading and it's tiring and it's like I'm doing like this radio interview and these like you know cishet people are throwing around the word tranny and it's like this is really disgusting to me i don't want to do this anymore yeah but here i am um but yeah what i'm gonna do yeah and like who am i as a, a non-trans person to tell you you can't use that word yeah fascinating it's so different coming out publicly versus privately is that a word that you heard a lot well that was the interesting thing too about it and i wrote a long column for for noisy i read a column called mandatory happiness for the website noisy and i i talk about the, the title in that but, you know, I was so prepared for that u- word to be used against me for the first time as a slur, right? That I, like, spent a lot of mental prep time being like, how will I react the first time this happens? Because I don't want to just immediately turn to, like, fucking beat you up. And the first time it was used towards me was by another trans person, just, like, jokingly referring or, you know, like, no hate involved. Just, you know, being like, oh, us two trannies or something like that. And it was really, like, stunning to me where it was like, wow, okay, this was not the context I expected this word to be used. So again, it's like, 
it's a complicated word. I like trans. I mean, maybe that's just because it's short. And but I, I, I like. And maybe some people disagree with this, but oh well. Um, like I like that it sounds cool. You know, like it. Sh- it should be. You know, yeah. like people, especially for young people, it's important to have like a that part of you that's like, yeah, I'm, I'm fucking trans. Fuck it, you. <laughs> it is cool. You're right. You're the first person to ever say that <laughs> in my mind. Why did you decide to give up your surname completely? Um. I don't really remember the logic even. No, really? Um, I don't know. I just, I never, it never felt fitting to me. You know, I never identified with, with the name that was given to me at birth. It always just felt off. Really? Yeah. Okay. For so long before you transitioned, you talked out loud to her, this like female side of you. Now, when you look in the mirror, do you like see her from before or is it like, is that a separate person? Um, I mean, a lot of that again was like, you know, talking about like not hearing the word transgender until I was like 19 or 20. So I spent a long time thinking like, maybe I'm schizophrenic. Maybe like I have these twin souls inside my body warring for control or something. I didn't understand, you know, like what was going on inside of me. So it was like searching for some kind of explanation. Oh, so that was your solution because you didn't have this other word yet. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. I'll do these interviews sometimes or whatever. And like the people introing me will, you know, give this grand, like this strong woman type thing. And it's just like, I roll, like I would equally roll my eyes at that. If someone was like this strong man, like, I just don't like representation like that. I don't like being referred to in those terms. I just want to like exist and be a human being, you know, and I'm trans, I'm transgender, you know, what that means to me, I become way more comfortable with, but my understanding of gender and the way it works has continued to evolve, thanks in part to coming out, you know, um, and, and meeting so many people uh, along the spectrum who identify in so many different ways. Um, I don't want to fit into a box. I don't want to obey societal norms. I don't, I'm fine if people don't understand me. You know, I think that you've before you transitioned, you were true, quote unquote, true to yourself. I would, I would gander say your like, fashion hasn't changed that much. Well, no, I mean, you know? coming out as trans wasn't saying like I don't actually like the color black. <laughs> I was like, I still like the color black. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm still a punk. <laughs> but like pre transition, you're still wearing like black jeans and like a black tank top. Yeah, well, I mean, part of that is I have a very strict philosophy of always dress. Uh, in an outfit, you will be comfortable spending a night in jail in. And also, black doesn't stain. So when you're traveling and you're like flying on planes, drinking coffee, whatever, like anytime I wear a white shirt, I've got like half an hour maybe before I get a stain on it. But black does not stain. It's purely functional. It is. You know, like when you travel that much, like I, I go for like... I'm blending in. I'm traveling in the airport. I do not want to be seen by people. That has nothing to do with being trans, though. It has more of being being a misanthrope. <laughs> so, <laughs> does your your home decor style does that kind of match this punk rock aesthetic too? I'm I'm a minimalist. I don't like having things. I don't like um, I I don't like existing in a way of fearing that I have things to lose, and I don't like. Um, just like having had to move so many times over my life, I like to always ha- know that like, okay, if I have to move within like a couple days time, I can move it all on my own without a moving company, you know, like, so not an over encompassing amount of stuff. It's also somebody speaking who's toured so much. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Right now you're on tour with Green Day. Oh, well, in March we go out. With you Green in Day. March. Yeah, so yeah. You're mm-hmm. starting tour. Is that just like completely wild since they were the first concert you ever went to? Yeah, totally. I, I mean, we played with them in 2005. We did Giant Stadium and we did Foxborough Stadium in Boston and a soccer stadium out here in LA that I forget the name of. Um, but I mean, to play to to play a show with the first band you ever saw play is like one of those full circle moments yeah. that I, you know I'm I'm appreciative of. Do they know that? I don't know if they know that. Really? No. Yeah. I, I know they know we're fans, you know, but I don't think they know that my first show was their band. Yeah. If I toured with the first band I ever saw, it would be me and Lady Gaga. <laughs> That'd be a great tour. <laughs> so, so fingers crossed, Laura. Get your claws out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, trans people can experience a change in their sexuality when they transition. Did you have any experience with that? Um. You know, it's it's really, like, interesting dating as a trans person, being open for the first time and going into that world, you know? Um, yeah, like, that's really essentially what I, like, wrote our last record about was that experience, you know? Because I, I was in a relationship where I was, like, married for, like, seven, eight years, and then I came out of that for the first time as myself, you know, where I'm, like, trans now, I'm open, you know, and, and, and now I'm dating, and going in, like, having historically dated women, finding yourself in a situation where you're wondering, like, is this person attracted to me because of, like, emerging femininity or fading masculinity? What do they see in me? And, like, experiencing things where you're like, okay, like, the dynamics that exist in relationships and power roles and stuff like that. It's just, like, a way eye-opening experience, you know? Yeah. Sounds like you are also, like, open to many possibilities. Is that right? I, yeah, I am. I, I think that's like a common thing when you're like, yes, gender and sexuality are like different, but they're like so intimately entwined. Sure. Mm-hmm. It was so fascinating to see what a sexual person you were, like all through tours on life. And um, I don't know if that was like my own like perceptions going into it that were like wrong, but it just surprised me because it doesn't like match what I would have thought. Right. It's well, just such a vulnerable spot. I mean, I, you know, I have a very addictive personality and, um, when it came to like masking my dysphoria, I would turn to music, I would turn to drugs, and I would turn to sex. And those are like my coping mechanisms. Wow. And now you're just a single parent. Yep. <laughs> on the market. It's really, it's fun dating when you're a single parent who plays in a band who's trans. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> is it, does it feel different performing sober? Um, no. I mean, you know, like, I, I've also like, you know, with saying like that I've used drugs or alcohol as like a coping mechanism, I've also been the type of person always where it's like, okay, if I need to sober up, I can sober up and I could be like sober for nine months or sober for a year or sober for a year and a half, whatever. Um, and definitely like with shows, you know, I've had my touring years where I've been really wasted and I've had my touring years where I've been stone cold sober. Um, I prefer being sober for sure while playing a show, but it's always nice to have a drink after a show. Are you sober now? Um, at this moment, yes. <laughs> Sorry, is that personal? <laughs> no, it's not personal. I know. I, I mean, like, you know, I spent like the last two months dry. I, I had a back injury. So I was like on some prescription meds for my lower back. So I was dry for two months. Um, but I'm, I, I smoke weed. I, I like smoking weed. Um, and I was up in, I was up in Vancouver, British Columbia, like right before this too, doing a, 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 a a piece for Vice about sampling all the cannabis up there. So for two days, I was just getting stoned in Vancouver. A lot of, in your book too, is that how like upset fans were 
at you and your band, I, I didn't realize that was like a part of punk music. I just, yeah. um, because the more fame, like they want you make, to make music, but they don't want you to like, make money off of it. it right. Like it has that changed. Like, are they more accepting of you guys now? I, yeah, you know, I think that's past. I think a little bit of that is like really like, uh, younger attitudes, you know, and I, and I get it because I've been that way with bands too, where like you find a band, you latch onto them and like they're, they're yours. They're your band. And you don't want to see them become other people's bands, especially if those are the people who are like beating you up at school, you know? So like when you're coming from a punk scene, like many punks like myself, I got into punk rock because I was getting beat up all the time and punk rock seemed like a way to fight back. So then when like your favorite punk band becomes that jock at school, who's beating you up's favorite band as well, you get pissed, right? Um, but, you know, with my band specifically, too, coming from the DIY punk movement, you know, coming from uh, the activist movement um, and being like an anti-capitalist band, you know, obviously there's hypocrisy there when you start making money off of your art. But again, punk rock was something that taught me to always think for myself, to always question everything. And I've always tried to make decisions to the best of my ability. And at the same time, recognizing that there are certain economics involved in things, you know, and if somebody's charging money at the door, saying like, hey, that's my fair cut isn't about like, give me money. It's just about, well, somebody's taking the money, you yeah. know, like, and it should be fair and that artists should be paired for their, paid for their work and that 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 it is valid work being a musician like name a society that's ever existed without music it, it's you know artists deserve to be paid for their work absolutely uh, and against me is like 10 years old now 12 20 what, excuse me 20 what 20 years old i started doing against me in 1997 so this oh is like God. our 20th anniversary coming up it was wild like hearing you like turning down like half a million dollar record deals and i was like oh my god she's 24 like she's 25 <laughs> yeah like i can't imagine dealing with these issues and you're like really thrown into this strange world you know where like you do have absurd amounts of money being thrown at you and these absurd offers being made that ultimately like will affect your life for years to come. And at the same time, so many people who are like around you and the handlers like treat you like a child. So you're like existing in this weird, like in between world like that. Um, and you just like, it's a scary thing to navigate, you know? I think that with like no experience, the band and you had so much business acumen just to brand yourselves as like the hardest parting uh, band, you know? <laughs> and like these, these are, that's very smart. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe it's, it was like for selfish reasons. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, that was you like, think the, I'm crazy. No, no, not at all. That's like the common denominator is you realized it was like, okay, what do the four of us as a band have in common? Well, we all like to drink and we all like to party. So we're going to become known as the hardest, hardest partying band. And then like, after a couple of years of that, you're like, oh, God damn, now everyone wants to buy you a shot everywhere you go and i can't possibly do all these shots um so it has its drawbacks if you want to put it like that you know? that's so funny it was just like the setting and achieving of simple goals early on like i want to write 10 songs and record them i want to play one show you kept like checking that off right well that's success to me that's that's always been the measure of success it's never been like oh did we make money off of it it's always like did we accomplish what we set out to do you you set out to do a show accomplished amazing that's success regardless of if anyone came it just happened same with putting out a record you know it doesn't matter how many records you sell it's just like you made a record that's the success to me that's the bar set i wanted to write a book i wrote a book 
Who cares what happens afterwards? The success is that it exists for me. I agree. I think the, the people who see this singing, they're hard on, uh, on stage. They don't see like those business steps, though. They don't see that. Um, like you just see somebody like living one of your dreams. Right. You know, and then it's a, such a big example about you never know what someone else is like dealing with behind the scenes. If I would have known how many emails were involved with being in a band, I would have become a lawyer. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Administrative work that goes into being in a band. It's like mind numbingly boring. That's part of it too, though. Especially as the front woman. Yeah, yeah. 20 years, like uh, you being the front woman, like you've been able to hold the band against me together through other rotating musicians. Right. Well, that was like always my philosophy behind it. My band wasn't one of those bands where like four people went into a room and the sound was born. You know, like I started this band as a bedroom project on my own with an acoustic guitar and a four track tape recorder. And then like after doing that, realized like, oh, it's more fun to play with your friends. You know, it's more fun to make music with other people. And but especially when I was younger and it was like, OK, nobody's making a living off this or whatever. If I want to keep it going, I got to really understand that if someone can't do it anymore, that that's just the way it is. And that can't deter me from wanting to continue to do it. I'll just have to look for other people to play with. And part of that was like the anarchist philosophy, too. Um, but just having that ability to be flexible and have the band grow and have it like, you know, shrink down if it needs to, too just as a means for survival. Um, but so that's that's been the way it's been for my band, you know? And I've been lucky in that it's made it a better band, you know, like that anytime I felt like I've hit a wall of like, oh, well, I, th I think that might all be all we can do musically. We might be peaking as a unit. Like there's been a change up where it's like, but now there's all these all other possibilities because it's different players and people have different talents in different areas where they excel in. So it's really, it keeps it interesting. And I like your willingness to keep evolving as a band. You know, you have a record and it's great. We don't want a second one like that. Right. You know, we don't need to copy that. No, I, I mean, that's like, you know, that's selfish too of like, I, I need to be engaged in what I'm doing. You know, I'm not just like pumping out records under the name against me that all sound like against me. Like I want to like what I'm into. And in order to do that, like you have to be representative of where you're at in your life. You know, I can't make the same music I made as a 18 year old kid eating out of dumpsters that was homeless because I'm not, I'm just not that person anymore. I'm a different person. So I have to make music that's true to the person I am now, you know? Yeah. The majority of your fans, are they people who have followed you for 20 years or are they like new people coming up? Um, we're really lucky that like we have a really eclectic fan base. And a lot of that is because of the tours we've done over the years. You know, you go out and you do the warp tour and you get you get a couple fans from that. You go out and do a tour with the Foo Fighters, you get a couple fans from that. You go out and do a tour with Mastodon, you get a couple fans from that. And then punk rock also has this certain like always forever young element to it where there's always like new kids coming into it. So the crowd kind of remains has youth in it always, you know. Um so and then, you know, opening it up too to knowing to, to like LGBTQ people knowing that it's like a safe space, you know, where like, okay, this is a band with a trans singer, you know, like that, that opens up another element to it too. So it's really like a diverse and cool audience. Yeah. I can't imagine growing up and like hearing music that I liked and a great band and then ha hearing a song that they sing called like true trans rebel soul. Yeah. Like that would blow my mind. <laughs> you know, it blows my mind to hear crowds singing it back. Yeah, really? for sure. But that was like another thing too that I really wanted to do with like our most recent record where like, you know, in talking about like writing dumb love songs, it's like there's so many dumb love songs out there that are just about some guy pining for some girl or some girl pining for some guy. 
And I think that there should be like, you know, all kinds of perspectives in that. I want I want to hear trans songs, like trans artists creating songs about mundane things like that, you know, like always relevant things like falling in love. I want to see like trans actors in action hero movies. I don't want it to always be about like this person who had this secret and came out as trans and then transitioned genders, you know, like that's been done. Like, let's make it, let's make it interesting. You know, um, I don't want to start rumors, but there is a big thing on social media about the star Wars movie. Yeah. I got to go and visit Lucasfilm yesterday. Oh, I really? got to do a tour because of that pretty much. Really? So there was like a, a campaign around the force awakens because I like, I'm a total star Wars nerd and I bought a Kylo Ren mask and I had a lightsaber and I took a picture and put it on Instagram, whatever. And and like this campaign popped up of people signing a petition to get me in the next Star Wars movie. And it was like something like 25,000 signatures of people who signed it. And so like, you know, they, they were, people at Lucasfilm um, were really gracious about that. And they're like, yeah, come on down. See see, see the studio and, and do a tour. Be on the Star Wars show. Wow. I treated it like like an audition the whole time. I was like doing lines and acting. Like holding lightsabers. Like, calm down. <laughs> like, this is, you're just hanging out. They're here. like, we think she's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's really cool. Yeah, it was epic. Oh my god, so, so no role. No, but they'll be making Star Wars movies until we're all dead, so I've got another chance or two. That's so funny. This last thing about your music. Do you ever play it around the house, your own music? No. Uh, not at all? <laughs> Never, no. Would you tell me if it was true? I, I would totally admit to that, but I don't. Especially now with a kid. Like, my, my daughter is, like, the most brutal critic. Where I was, like, not too long ago working on a song in the other room, and she's, like, down the hallway, and she's like, that song is terrible. And I was just, like, crushed. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I don't. I mean, like, once a record is done, it's done. That's I'm, the, I'm moving on. That's the perfect ego check, having a kid. Yeah, it really is. Can I ask why you blacked out your entire arm, the tattoos? Yeah, you know, um, it was an accident, actually. I, I, I like the whole thing. The the arm specifically. Uh, like, obviously, I'm I'm really into tattoos, and I've been I've been doing like a, a full body suit, so I'm much tattooed head oh, to wow. toe at this point. But um, with my arm specifically, I went to see uh, an artist in the Bay Area that specifically, you know, works in black work design, and they're the type of artist who doesn't really want you to tell them what to do. They just you know, want a general idea and you either like their work or you don't. So I told them beforehand, I was like, you know, I don't like this tattoo that I have here and I don't like this tattoo I have here, but I want to keep this and I want to keep this and I want to keep this. So I was on my way into the tattoo appointment and I'd flown across the country for it and I saw a suicide jumper on my way into the tattoo appointment. It was like straight out of a movie where there was someone on top of the building trying to talk them down and a crowd down below. And so I went into that tattoo appointment just like so shaken, you know, just like so rattled and was obviously not on the same page as everyone else in the shop. So I like, you know, sat down in the chair and just like wasn't really paying attention and ended up leaving with like half of a black arm where I was like, he just totally went over tattoos that I wanted to keep. And I just, what am I going to do? Um, so I ended up having to go to a friend of mine who's also a tattoo artist. And I was like, can you just finish it off? Can you black it out? Um, and, and that's kind of the story behind it. And now that that's passed, do you like it? I do. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Like, again, like I had like a tattoo of a Virgin Mary here and I'm not religious in any way. I don't believe in God. Um, so like looking at it was always like, why the fuck did I get that? You know? Um, and it's amazing how much like, you know, your arms like are so much a part of your identity. You see them all the time. So to have the perspective change of like not, not having to look at something that makes you unhappy all the time was really like, it changed my being, you know? Wow. 
You mentioned religion. In, in the book, when you were early on playing in church, you described playing as like a spiritual experience. Right. It's just like in terms of spirituality, do you still feel like that when you play? I do, yeah. I mean, it's it's transcendent. You know, it takes you to another place. At least the best shows, you know, the good shows do where it's like out-of-body experiences. I don't have to think about what I'm doing. It's all like, it's all just there and it happens naturally. And I mean, not to quote Eminem, but you lose yourself in the music, the moment you own it. Um, (laughs) If I have a church, it's on stage, you know. I think that's such a great place to leave it on. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. And that's our show. If you enjoyed the interview even a little bit, please subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment on iTunes. Leaving a comment is specifically one of the biggest ways to help new people find our show. So big thank you for that. You can also sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of our new episodes, all of our live shows we've got coming up. And then I love hearing your guest suggestions each week, so keep those coming. The easiest way to connect is on Twitter. I tweet from at JeffMasters1. All right, I'm out of here. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home, AfterBuzz TV, the Elon University in Los Angeles studio, Jason Mahmurdy, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>